We covered several psalms of coronation last week, which is why I felt the need to cover Psalm 91 to 100, because they're coronation psalms, at least seven of them. And they're psalms written, as we talked about last week, for the coronation of God the King. Not the coronation of an earthly king, but the coronation of God the King on earth. Back in Psalm 98, if you look at that just for a moment, verse 2, the Lord has made known His salvation. And His salvation has a name, Jesus. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Now, tonight, Psalm 101 picks up at the end of the coronation, or perhaps part of the coronation ceremony, we move from coronation to inauguration. I want you to imagine, if you can, just the idea that the shouts and the cheers die down and a, and a newly crowned king now steps up to the podium to give his first inaugural address. Many Bible commentators believe that's exactly what Psalm 101 is. It's the inaugural address of David. David wrote it. Psalm 101, a psalm of David. And they believe, based on content and what it says, this is the inaugural address of David. When he finally stepped up and and was crowned king over all of Israel, there in 2 Samuel chapter 5, you can read the story. When finally a unified Israel, not just Judah, but all of Israel, come together and they declare David king, his third anointing at that point. And some say it's his inaugural address. Let's read it together. Verse 1. I will sing of the loving kindness and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. And this inaugural address begins with a praiseworthy promotion. If, in fact, this is David on Inauguration Day, speaking out to all the people, having written this down as his opening day speech, then he begins by promoting this perfect balance of loving kindness and justice. Loving kindness and justice. You know, I think sometimes we get so used to reading those two words together in Scripture that we gloss over them or we think, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's what God does. But understand this. No government, no legal system, not even any religious system, at least that I know of, has been able to accomplish the perfect balance of loving kindness and justice. I'm always trying to figure that one out. Even in the administration of church things, how can you express grace when there needs to be some degree of judgment? Or or how can you be judging something and at the same time show loving kindness and grace? And it's very difficult for us to do as human beings. Thanks primarily to the sin nature of man. We really will go one degree or the other. We'll either be overly gracious and therefore let things slide. Or we'll be so judgmental that we're not expressing the grace of God. And and it's like this pendulum swing. Do you feel like that in your life sometimes? I know as a parent I feel that way. Sometimes, man, I've been too nice lately. I need to spank somebody. You know? (laughs) Or on the other hand, man, I'm I'm really riding the kids. I need to show some grace. And it's just, it's like this, rather than this perfect balance. And David opens up, he begins, he elevates this, he promotes it. I'll sing of grace, loving kindness. And justice, but but he knows where it comes from. Because he immediately applies it to God. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. 
Oh, David, the man after God's own heart. He knew. He knew he wasn't capable of loving kindness and justice, although that's his aspiration to rule over his kingdom with this kind of perfect balance. And yet he knows it won't come from him. And so he immediately turns the praise to the Lord. Loving kindness, justice, they are yours, Lord. Psalm 103 Verse 6 tells us the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. And the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Because God knows how to balance the two perfectly. He's never too judgmental. He's never too gracious. He's exactly what is necessary, perfect with both. So David starts off a praiseworthy promotion and then he enters into, and I love this, a personal expectation. Verse 2. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Again, the picture is inauguration, standing before the people. Here's how I'll rule and reign as your king. And he states these things, and I I read over those verses several times, verses 2 through 4. And it struck me, can you imagine what it would be like if a newly elected American president stood up and said exactly that? What a breath of fresh air. Rather than I'm going to do my best to correct the wrongs of the previous administration. You know, or, or rather than play the blame game at all, or point fingers, or say, you know what, we're going to drain the swamp of their corruption. No, David begins with himself. David says, I'm starting right here. I, he says, I will behave blamelessly. And, and I will walk within my own house in the integrity of my heart. In other words, where no one sees me but my family. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, that's where the rubber meets the road in Christian faith. When nobody sees you but those who know you best. Hey, I can come in here, I've told you this before, I can come in here and really appear righteous. But it's at home with Cheryl and the kids. Am I walking there within my own house with integrity and righteousness and and truth. David says, I'm going to do that in my house where none of you see me. He says, I will set, I love this, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I will know no evil. He lays these things out and I think, wow, you want to change the tone in Washington, D.C.? Then have a president start there. Have a man stand up and say, Americans, I will do my best, first and foremost, to be loyal to the Father and to be a man of integrity, and to walk in what's right, and to not do anything evil. I'm starting with me. What a great place to begin. That, it's a great standard by which to live. These, these verses 2 through 4, to, to consider and even to memorize. I love verse 3 especially. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I think we can take that verse, and Cheryl and I thought about doing this. Take that verse and make a nice little plaque and put it right on top of the TV. I will set no worthless thing. How, how often do you find yourself watching something worthless? Maybe not patently immoral, but, but you're flipping the channels and, and you stop and meet. Maybe it's cops, you know? And you're just watching. <laughs> and the drool coming down and you got, you know, Cheetos on your fingers. 
And and it seems fine until they're busting, you know, a prostitute and they're bleeping every other word and it's and it's dark and it's ugly and but you're already there. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I'm just not going to watch that stuff. I'm not going to pay attention to these things. We should post them. Seriously, above our TVs, right above our computer screens, that verse right there. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Oh, David, a man after God's own heart. And he talks about this. He starts with a praiseworthy promotion and then a personal expectation for himself. And then he talks about his, I love this, his perfect administration. Verse 5. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Literally, the word there is silence. I will silence that man. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way, or literally with integrity, is the one who will minister to me, my administration. I'm going to surround myself with men, with women, surround myself with men and women of integrity. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks a falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy, or again literally silence, I will silence all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. And that's what David here, he is describing his perfect administration. And I have to ask the question, how did David do? Because as an opening inaugural day address, this psalm is quite idealistic for a sinful man. You know, David did all right. I mean, he was a man after God's own heart, and he certainly tried. And we see throughout his, his administration, throughout his rule, that, you know, for the most part, he did, he did pretty good. But even though he had the right heart, we also know he made the wrong decisions more than once. He cost his own family stability, blew that out the door. He cost 70,000 fighting men of Israel their lives. He had the right heart, but he was also a human being. And so he didn't do this like he said he would do this. But, but here's the thing. This address, though spoken by David, truly describes a blameless king. They describe one who rules perfectly, who invites faithfulness and rejects falsehood. And we have the advantage in history of looking back at David and saying, though he spoke these words, though he wrote these words, these words do not apply to David and his administration. But they do have a future application. They do have a future reference, a prophetic reference. This psalm is perfectly placed following the coronation of God the King on earth. Because after the coronation and the praise, let God reign over all the earth, now comes the inaugural address. Placed here by the Spirit of God in this location. Why? Because I believe this to be the inaugural address of Jesus Christ. I don't know if it's exact words. I'm not saying that this is what Jesus is going to say on that day. Perhaps He will, maybe not. But the point is that this applies beautifully to Jesus. It's a messianic inaugural address because Jesus will bring both mercy and justice. He will have the perfect balance. He will have flawless integrity as He expects that of Himself as King of all the earth. And He will even have a perfectly righteous administration. And I kind of like this one. I talk about this from time to time just because it pumps me up. 
I'm going to be part of the administration of Jesus Christ, and so will you. You walk in Christ, you live in Christ, you're called home when Christ calls us home, and you will be part of that administration. The 14th verse of the book of Jude, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. His holy ones. Who are they? The saints. Not many thousands of His angels, angelos, but many thousands of His holy ones. Hagios. Saints. Followers. Believers, those who have already gone home to be with Him, coming back with Him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says, When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, He will be marveled at among all who believe, for our testimony to you was believed. And locking it in, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, and this is spoken of two other times, Revelation 1 and Revelation 5, but He says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years, part of the perfect administration of Jesus. What's described right here? The faithful of the land who walk in a blameless way. We won't practice deceit because we will be dwelling with the Lord and serving Him and ruling and reigning with Him as His royal priesthood. Amazing. Marvelous. Now you might say... Okay, Rick, I I can follow in all that, and that sounds good, but I have a question here. If this psalm is indicative of Jesus, and not just David, why does he begin by singing praises to the Lord? You know, if you're going to go that far and kind of take it literally, why would Jesus do that? Aren't Jesus and the Father one? So wouldn't that kind of make your little example here break down a bit? I don't think so. It's the same question people ask when they say, I don't understand why Jesus on earth was praying to God in heaven. You ever had that question or been asked that question? Why if Jesus is God, if He was God in the flesh, why was He praying to God in heaven? And I've had that asked many times and it seems to be confusing when He walked the earth the first time. And and the answer is very clear. It's very simple that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. He did come as God in the flesh, but our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the example of God that we see in Jesus in the flesh was also an example, not just of Son of God, but Son of Man. And so as Jesus walked in the flesh and prays to the Father, there's that unique relationship, intimate between Father, Son, and Spirit, talking together, functioning together, unified, and yet when Jesus walked on the earth, separated to a degree for a time, Jesus willingly subjected Himself, though He is as much God as God the Father, He subjected Himself to being in that role, Son of God, praying and responding to the Father. Well, that's great for them. But Jesus is resurrected and He's in His glorified body and He's in heaven with the Father and He is... You know, this is different now, right? I mean, won't the rule and reign of Jesus be different? Not so fast. Listen to this verse. Spin you around a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15.28 tells us, When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. What does that mean? Simply put, it means that Jesus still has an earthly role to play. Fully God, fully man. 
Jesus, as He rules and reigns over the earth, puts Himself in subjection to the Father. We're not talking about rule. We're not talking about greater than. We're talking about role. Do you understand the difference? It's the role that Jesus accepts, the role that He plays. He's glorified, He's awesome, but during the millennial reign, Scripture indicates that Jesus will still, in a way, be subject to God the Father as He rules and reigns over the earth. Perfect, absolute representation of God on earth. Emmanuel, God with us, He is all of this, but still wearing the role of the Son installed to rule by the Father. Listen to these verses. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Father installs the Son to rule. And so, in the same way that Jesus prayed to the Father when He was on earth the first time, He can sing praises and will be part of that, by the way. He'll be part of all the thanksgiving and the praise-giving when He's on earth the second time. He's going to lead the chorus. Are you serious? Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I, Jesus speaking, I will sing your praise. We're going to worship God on earth in the Millennial Kingdom and Jesus, He will sing and praise right along with us, glorifying God. We're going to be looking at Jesus going, yeah, but you are God. He's going to say, yeah, and so is my Father. And all will worship together. Now that can get a little heady theologically, but practically speaking, it's wonderful. Who better than Jesus to reign perfectly on the earth? Who better than the one who is God, the King, who lived as a peasant, only to be lifted up again as King? Who better than the priest, who knew sin and became the sacrifice in and of himself, to rule perfectly. Priest and king. Zechariah 6.13 He will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. The office of king, the office of priest. Jesus is perfect. He's got them both covered. And so he will rule and reign in that manner. And the, the practical thing here is, again, Jesus coming to live and rule and reign. Fully God, fully human, still fully understanding mankind. Nobody could rule like Jesus is going to rule. And that's the main point. That's the main thing to get. So Psalm 101 is that inaugural address after the coronation of the king. Now, come to Psalm 102. If you look at the heading, it says, A prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Some of the ancient rabbis and some commentators believe that this also is a psalm of David. Uh, they say this deals with his own personal shortcomings and failures of his administration. In fact, it's placed here, some believe, because after the inaugural address, now you have David looking back and realizing how dreadful things really were and, and he's suffering for it. And so he writes Psalm 102. And that makes sense. That, that may very well be. I mean, if you contrast it with the hopeful idealism of Psalm 101, Psalm 102 is a pretty heavy deal. Others say, no, it's not David. 
There's a school of thought out there that says this is Daniel. A psalm of Daniel. We don't have any psalms of Daniel. This will be a psalm of Daniel who is in this psalm grieving over the sin of Judah and their deportation into Babylon. And that actually fits a little better as you'll see when we get into the context of the psalm. Perhaps. Perhaps it was Daniel crying out to the Father. David, Daniel, I'll also suggest a third possibility. But I'll share that in just a moment. Verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to You. Do not hide Your face from me. In the day of my distress, incline Your ear to me. In the day when I call, answer me quickly. For my days have been consumed in smoke, and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass, and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican in the wilderness. I have become like an owl in the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop, or literally a sparrow. Sparrow on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. Verse 11. My days are like a lengthened shadow and I wither away like grass. You might want to jot some things down here quickly. Four things to note about what sin does. Because this is the cry of a distressed and wiped out person because of his sin. And he recognizes it's his sin and rebellion that ultimately landed him in this place. And we know back in verse 3 that sin is consuming. Sin is consuming. My days have been consumed in smoke. My bones have been scorched like a hearth. It's a very graphic picture of where sin lands us. Back in the book of Job, verse 24, chapter 24, verse 19, Job said, Drought and heat consume the snow waters. Sheol consumes those who have sinned. And that's what it does. It just gets hold and it doesn't let go and it begins to consume and envelop until it completely takes over. This is what sin does. There's no such thing as little sins. It compounds and grows. Sin is consuming. Secondly, sin is sickening. Sin is sickening. Not just that sin grosses you out, but sin will make you sick. Verse 4, he says, My heart has been smitten like grass and withered away. I forgot to eat my bread because of the loudness of my groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. Sin is sickening. Psalm 38, verse 3 says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. Man, that's just a reality. The world does not get it. That sin leads to literal physical pain and sickness and anxiety. Sin is consuming. Sin is sickening. Number three, sin is isolating. It's isolating. Verses 6 through 7 are interesting. He mentions three birds. A pelican of the wilderness, an owl of the waste places, and a lonely sparrow on a housetop. And all three are incongruous with the type of bird mentioned. What do you mean? Pelicans don't live in the wilderness. Pelicans live by the sea. They're birds above the water. Owls don't live out in the waste places. They live in forests. I had one fly across the path last week and scare me to death. Whoa, and it was big. 
These, these owls, they live in forested places, not the wilderness. And a lonely sparrow? Sparrows don't hang out by themselves. There's always another one darting around chasing them. There are always groups of them out together. You rarely see a sparrow by itself. But what the psalmist is saying in here is, I'm like all these things, I'm, it's like I'm isolated. I shouldn't be out here all by myself. That's not where I belong. I shouldn't be in this place or that place or the other. It's, it's not where I belong. Sin is isolating. And we find that, and perhaps you know this in your own life, when we sin, we have a tendency to close in and shut out those who are around us. Why? Well, because number four, sin is just humiliating. Sin is just humiliating. My enemies, he says, have reproached me all day long. Verse 8, those who deride me have used my name as as a curse. It's just humiliating. Which is why when we sin, we don't want to be caught. We don't want anybody to know when we realize what we've done, even when we are stung by the pangs of guilt, we, we want to keep it quiet. Confession is difficult because we're afraid, ah, oh, I'll be humiliated. If I come up to the front and people find out what I did, it's humiliating. Well, you know, just the opposite in Christ, when we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, that's the place that we're all in this together. That anyone confesses anything, no matter how horrendous, forgiveness is here, and restoration, and redemption, and grace. And yet, sin is a humiliating thing. Moses said in Numbers 32-23, Be sure, your sin will find you out. We don't want it to. It's consuming, sickening, isolating, humiliating. And gang, Jesus felt all of that on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, our sin consumed Him. At Calvary, our sin sickened Him. Our sin isolated Him there in that lonely place. Our sin was humiliating for Him. He felt every one of these horrible ramifications of sin, and He didn't even sin. But He took our sin on Himself. For the joy set before Him, the Hebrew writer tells us, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. I go through that because we need to pause every now and then and remember the ugliness and consider where it is that sin leads us. Where it is that sin takes us. And when we do that, man, who wouldn't want to be washed clean by the blood of Jesus? Who wouldn't want the freedom that comes with confession and repentance? Peter said, repent and times of refreshing will come. Now, was it David personally or Daniel corporately writing about all this stuff? I don't know about the writer, but I do have a strong sense about the subject matter and who is being talked about here. This is a psalm that is absolutely stunning, incredibly specific in its description as a recent prophecy of a current event that took place between 1933 and 1948 in our time. This psalm, I believe, absolutely speaking of that time, the rise and the fall of the Third Reich, when another nation was being prepared. This is a prophecy of the Holocaust. Now watch this and consider it. Take a look back. Not only the Holocaust, but also ultimately the hope of Israel. Look at verse 3 again and consider this. For my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. The Holocaust. 
Six million Jews were massacred. Six million. We've heard the number. I mean, it's been splashed about, you know, history books and, and the news from time to time. Six million Jews. Well, six million. No. Think about that. The entire population of Israel today, Jews and Arabs combined, is around seven and a half million. Jews are just about back to that place in Israel. They almost have six million Jews living there today. That would be the entire nation wiped out in a few years. It was a horrific thing. Most of these six million were gassed, their bodies burned, their bones scorched like a hearth in the ovens of Auschwitz, Birkenau, and Treblinka and Bergen-Belsen, death camps like Buchenwald and Dachau. Did you know this? In all, there were over 15 thousand death camps Nazi death camps throughout Europe 15,000 plus camps I'm not even talking about numbers of of dead I mean it spread like a sickening virus it was awful and the ovens in these camps especially as things began to get rolling would burn 24 hours a day 7 days a week belching out smoke and ash from those blackened brick chimneys but the smoke and ash was what was left of the people. Horrifying. I want to read you something here. I've recommended this book before, and it's something I I think everyone should read. It's by Ellie Weisel. He wrote the book Night. It's a short read. It's a difficult read. I want you to hear something here. There was a woman among us, a certain Mrs. Schachter, She was in her 50s and her 10-year-old son was with her crouched in a corner. Her husband and her two older sons had been deported with the first transport by mistake and the separation had totally shattered her. I knew her well, a quiet, tense woman with piercing eyes. She had been a frequent guest in our house. Her husband was a pious man who spent most of his days and nights in the house of study. It was she who supported the family. Mrs. Schachter had lost her mind. On the first day of the journey... She had already begun to moan. She kept asking why she had to be separated from her family. Later, her sobs and her screams became hysterical. And then on the third night, as some were sleeping, some of us sitting, huddled against each other, some standing, a piercing cry broke the silence of the cattle car. Fire! I see a fire! I see a fire! There was a moment of panic. Who had screamed? It was Mrs. Schachter. Standing in the middle of the car, in the faint light filtering through the windows, she looked like a withered tree in a field of wheat. She was howling and pointing through the window. Look! Look at this fire! This terrible fire! Have mercy on me! And some pressed against the bars to see. There was nothing. Only the darkness of night. It took us a long time to recover from this harsh awakening. We were still trembling, and with every screech of the wheels, we felt the abyss opening beneath us. Unable to still our anguish, we tried to reassure each other. She's mad. Poor woman. Someone had placed a damp rag on her forehead, but she nevertheless continued to scream, Fire! I see a fire! Her little boy was crying clinging to her skirt, trying to hold her hand. It's nothing, Mother. There's nothing there. Please sit down. He pained me even more than did his mother's cries. Some of the women tried to calm her. You'll see, you'll find your husband and sons again in a few days. But she continued to scream and to sob fitfully. Jews, listen to me, she cried. I see a fire. I see flames, huge flames. 
It was as though she were possessed by some evil spirit. We tried to reason with her, more to calm ourselves, to catch our breath than to soothe her. She's hallucinating because she's thirsty, poor woman. That's why she speaks of flames devouring her. But it was all in vain. Our terror could no longer be contained. Our nerves had reached a breaking point. Our very skin was aching. It was as though madness had infected all of us and we gave up. And a few young men forced her to sit down and bound and gagged her. Silence fell again. A small boy sat next to his mother, crying. I started to breathe normally again as I listened to the rhythmic pounding of the wheels on the tracks as the train raced through the night. We could begin to doze again, to rest, and to dream. And so an hour or two passed. Another scream jolted us. The woman had broken free of her bonds and was shouting louder than before, Look at the fire! Look at the flames! Flames everywhere! And once again the young men bound and gagged her and they actually struck her. And people shouted their approval. Keep her quiet. Make that mad woman shut up. She's not the only one here. And she received several blows to the head, blows that could have been lethal. Her son was clinging desperately to her, not uttering a word, and he was no longer crying. And the night seemed endless. By daybreak, Mrs. Schachter had settled down, crouching in a corner, her blank gaze fixed on some faraway place. She no longer saw us. She remained like that all day, mute, silent, alone, absent in the midst of us. But toward evening, she began to shout again, Fire! The fire! Over there! And she was pointing somewhere in the distance, always the same place. No one of us felt like beating her anymore. The heat, the thirst, the stench, the lack of air were suffocating us. Yet all that was nothing compared to her screams, which tore us apart. A few more days, and all of us would have started to scream. But we were pulling into a station. Someone near a window read to us, Auschwitz. Nobody had ever heard that name before. And he goes on to talk about his experience in Auschwitz. She crying out, Fire! Look at the flames! And she must have seen somehow, must have been aware of the end result of those going into Auschwitz, those brick ovens. Eli Weissel later describes a cold morning in the camp when given a cup of of dark coffee and a crust of bread, he looked down to note as every day that ash was falling and his father had been taken the day before and he realized what the ashes were. And he makes a statement later in the book that starvation isn't limited to stale bread and, and poor offerings. Starvation sometimes was simply limited to the reality because you couldn't eat or drink anything that didn't have ashes in it. Ashes. He says over in verse 9, I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath. Back there in verse 5, because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. Bones clinging to flesh. You've seen the pictures. Whether it's been in an old textbook or perhaps those of you who have gone to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial, or perhaps another Holocaust Memorial, you've seen the pictures described also in verse 11. My days are like a lengthened shadow, literally stretched thin. My days are stretched thin and I wither away like grass. Pictures of emaciated and drawn and withered and skeletal creatures, hollow-eyed that barely even resemble humanity. 
And I, I'm convinced that that's exactly what this psalm is prophesying. Written so long ago about something that happened in this generation. Verse 8, My enemies have approached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. Here in my Bible I have a yellow star in the, in the side here with the name Jude written in it as a reminder to me as I come to that verse that the yellow star and Jude, the, the German name for Jew. Now the star of David is a place of pride for the Jewish people. Then it was not a place of pride. It was a marking of death. And almost every phrase, and if you choose to do this and have time to, you may want to go back and go line by line. Almost every single phrase in these first 11 verses describe or speak of in detail, in graphic description, the Holocaust and what happened to the Jewish people. But you might ask, aside from the dramatic pictures, how can you be so sure that this psalm is about that period of time, 1933 to 1948? Well, honestly, it's not because of the first 11 verses. It's because of the last verses, the rest of the psalm. I'm convinced because of the context of what came next. Watch this, verse 12. But you, O Lord, abide forever, and your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion. For it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. And it came. The appointed time. Hitler's final solution to eradicate the Jewish population from the world became the unintended catalyst of the state of Israel. Absolutely astounding how this all came came to be. The Jews had an awakening, 1933 to 1945. You see, as we've talked about, I believe recently, they were comfortable in their homes in Germany, in Europe. There was no reason to go back to that wasteland of Israel until the Holocaust. And suddenly in the Holocaust, the Jews woke up and realized if we don't have a homeland, we will perish. If not Hitler, someone else. We will be wiped off the face of the earth. And the drive for the homeland became that much more intense. From 1945 to 1948, the Jews began flooding into the land. Back to the place where they could gather together and have some sense of of security. Verse 14 continuing on says, Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. Pleasure in her stones. Israel's a stony land. You know, where we have wood, they have stones. They build things out of rock. We build things out of wood, which is why we have wooden mangers in our Christmas scenes. But every manger I've ever seen in Israel is a stone manger. They make things out of stone. That's what the land is. It's very rocky. And so to go there, and and, you know, it's interesting, it's said that every Jew in Israel today is an amateur archaeologist. Because they all have to do with, they all are interested in the rocks and the stones, and and they are so precise in their archaeological digs, which yields wonderful things, many things that we have talked about here. But that line, and feel pity for her dust. Something else happened following the Holocaust, 1945 to 1948. The world, suddenly a window opened, and for a brief period of time, an unusual moment of anti-anti-Semitism, the world was compassionate to the Jew. And the United Nations actually, in a stunning vote, granted Israel their homeland. And on May 14th, 1948, the appointed time came. Israel declared her independence. 
Our own President Truman was the first one on the phone to acknowledge Israel as a nation. It was an amazing time, an exciting time. Independence Day. And people the world over were were blown away by what happened. You know the next day, May 15th, the Arabs declared war. Five Arab nations attacked. And Israel fought and won her independence against the attacking Arab horde. Verse 15 goes on. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth, your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion and He has appeared in His glory. I've got to give you a note here. The word is has, has there literally translated the Lord shall. And that makes a difference in the reading. It's not the Lord has built up Zion. It's the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in His glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. He shall do these things. This is something destined to come part of this appointed time. When did the Lord build up Zion? Well, He began to build up Zion again in 1948 as Israel became a nation. Independence Day. The building continued June 6, 1967 with the conclusion of the Six-Day War and Jerusalem once again was unified under Jewish authority for the first time since AD 70. An incredible thing happened. And when did the Lord appear in glory? Or when does the Lord appear in glory? The Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in His glory. Once Zion is built up, then, then the Lord shall appear in glory. This is a key prophetic verse. Because until 1948, this psalm could not be applied. Until Zion was built up again. Well, there was no Zion. There was no Israel. And so back in the 1800s and the 1700s and down 2,000 years nearly of of church history, there's no Zion for God to build up. Therefore, the Lord shall not appear. (laughs) When Zion's built up, the Lord shall appear after the events declared in this psalm Isaiah 66 verse 8 Brian's favorite verse for one of them we were gathered the, the Israel uh, tour group this uh, last Sunday night just looking at pictures and talking about the tour and enjoying some fellowship and, and Brian opens Isaiah 66 verse 8 and says I love this verse and he read it who has heard such a thing who has seen such things can a land be born in one day can a nation be brought forth all at once As soon as Zion travailed, the Holocaust, she also brought forth her sons. The Holocaust gave birth to the nation of Israel. God's plan is marvelous, incredible. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 32, Now, learn the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree is a picture of Israel throughout Scripture. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize He is near right at the door. And so again, in verse 17, He shall regard the prayer of the destitute, or literally the naked, which draws more horrific pictures to mind from the Holocaust. He hears their prayer. And he shall not despise their prayer. Now watch this. This was written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. The phrase generation to come in the Hebrew is Lador Acharon. Lador Acharon, generation to come, is literally translated the final generation. This is written, gang, so that those who are alive in the final generation 
may praise the Lord. It means that this prophecy, this psalm, can only be fully read and understood in the final generation. Prior to 1948, Brian could not have gotten excited about Isaiah 66, partially because he wasn't around. But had he been, Isaiah 66 verse 8 would mean nothing until the final generation, until all these things took place before us. And Jesus said, and I quote Matthew 24, 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. See, the wonder of Scripture here is you go to Jesus in Matthew 24, 34, and you say, okay, but is He talking about this generation of the Jews, or is He talking about the generation alive at the time that Israel becomes a nation? Which is it? Well, then you come over to Psalm 102, verse, verse 18, and you read, this will be written for the Lador Acharon, the final generation. These things, the Holocaust, would take place, gang, in the final generation. Israel, a nation in the final generation at the appointed time. All this coming to pass before our eyes. And by the way, you may recall, if you were around in 1948, I wasn't. Not quite yet. But the world in Christianity was quite astir at that time. Israel's a nation. Suddenly, Scripture just opened up and people began saying, this is what it's always said. And people got very excited. 1967, when Jerusalem was unified under Jewish authority again, oh, the, pro- the prophecy world went nuts. Christians everywhere were excited and, and the buzz and the talking about it. 1973, the Yom Kippur War, they should have been wiped out. They weren't. Once again, we see this miraculous protection. And I remember, I do remember growing up as a kid and all the comments about Israel and the last day's prophecy students were all talking And there was a lot of talk among Christians and it was a very exciting time. And here we are in 2010 and things have kind of cooled off. They've kind of settled down. Well, that's, you know, that's cool. That's interesting. Rick, can we finish the psalm and just move on? You know, that's that's nice. Great. 1967, that was a long time ago. That doesn't apply. And people have chilled out on prophecy. I, I watch this and I'm... I'm amazed to see all this going on. And even some Christians are mocking in times, last days, prophecy. Mocking it. That's okay. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And you know what I love about this? The more they mock, the more sure I am that we're in the last days. (laughs) They have just become part of the signs of the times. Wandering around saying, ah, your last days. But actually, you know what? When the Left Behind series came out and a lot of people got real excited at first again, I was kind of concerned because I thought, oh, the mocking's going away. Maybe we're not in the last days after all. (laughs) I'm kidding. I didn't think that. But here we are again. You know, a lot of people interested, and now people going, ah, it's just a fiction. It's fiction. It's not truth. Dave? How long is the generation? The Bible describes a generation three ways. A generation is either 40 years or 100 years, or the span of a father to a son. So as you look at it in Scripture, those, those are the three specific ways. And it can be as long as a hundred years. 
there were those who in 1988 were all excited because 40 years, a generation, 1948, 1988 must be the time, you know. But you can't, you can't do that. The Bible's very clear. We can't know the day and the hour. We can know the season, and we're in it. I'm convinced. So then there are those who say, well, 100 years, so 2048. And uh, I again say, we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know the time. The generation alive at the founding of Israel. That means there's going to be someone alive on earth who saw the founding of Israel in 48, who is alive when Jesus calls the church out. If that understanding is correct. And I, I lean that direction. I think it is. The other possible understanding and, and the wonder of Scripture is we will, we will know fully. Right now we, we see as in a mirror darkly. We don't know everything and, and we're trying to piece it together and look at all Scripture. But then we will know fully. Now, I, if, if that's not right, you know, if 2049 comes, I'll be really bummed. But if it does, then I'll say, okay, then we need to understand that perhaps... Or if the last person who was alive in 48 passes away and Jesus hasn't come, then we have to understand that Jesus said, this generation, this genus, this group of people, the Jews, will not pass away until all these things take place. Does that make sense? That He will protect the Jewish people and maintain them until He returns. So either way it works. But when we read things like this psalm, it is very clear that this will be written for the Lador Acheron, the final generation. And that's why I believe we're in it. That and, and many more scriptures, many more passages. Well, let's keep rolling. Verse 19. For he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who are doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion. Where's Zion? It's Israel. Literally, Jerusalem, but it also speaks of all Israel. And His praise in Jerusalem, when the people are gathered together, and the kingdoms come, or the kingdoms to serve the Lord. And now we're speaking of that time, when God will keep His promises, and the kingdoms, the nations of all the world, are going to flow into Jerusalem, and they're going to serve and worship the Lord. Every tongue, tribe, nation will come before the crowned King there in Zion. Verse 23 He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. Remember what Jesus says? These days have been shortened because of the elect. Well, here He says, He shortened my days. I say, Oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. All generations. You see what the psalmist is doing? He talks about the Holocaust. This tragic, awful, horrible event. He talks about the appointed time happening. He talks about the last generation praising God, recognizing all these things and understanding this truth. And then he goes on to say, all of this has happened. I'm weakened because of it. My days are shortened. And yet, and yet, I say, oh God, do not take me away. In the midst of my days, your years are throughout all generations. He's leaning into God. In spite of the trauma and the tragedy. He's leaning into the everlasting God. He says in verse 29 or 25, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. 
We will be changed. You are the same. Your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue. And their descendants will be established before you. And so we end there with the millennial kingdom. All the way out from 1933, all the way out to the final days, the millennial kingdom as the children's children of Israel continue, their descendants continue on because God is faithful and keeps His promises. And by the way, the you He's talking about there in those closing verses of old, you founded the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands, you endure, you will change them, you are the same, your years will not come to, the, to an end. And He's describing Jesus beautifully. And I'm not just making that up. The Hebrew writer happens to agree with me. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12. Take those closing verses, 25, 26, 27, and quote them to say this is talking about Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 13, verse 8 tells us, indeed, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so here's the thing. When I don't understand my current situation, my problems, even the most horrifying things that a person can face in life, like the Holocaust, even though I might not understand this, that I know this, that you, O God, are unchanging. And you, O God, are everlasting, and I can trust in you. I can't trust how this is all going to play out, but I can trust in Him. I can lean into the Father. Psalm 103 is a beautiful psalm. Psalm 103 is the only psalm in the entire book of praises that bears no complaint. Not a single one. There's no enemy prayed against. There's no angst. There's no anger. There's no frustration. There's no sorrow. There's no sin. It's just bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. It's a wonderful psalm and it's a great one specifically to soak in, which we're going to have to wait until Sunday to do. Okay, So we're going to soak it up on Sunday. We'll come back to it. Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is a great psalm, and I want to conclude with it tonight and, and take you through it. Now, this is one that you're going to want to have a pin out and jot some things down in the margin just as we walk it through. Because this psalm is a creation hymn. Literally a, a hymn, a marvelous hymn to God as our great Creator. And what we see in this is creation unfolds. The creation story, days 1 through 6, unfold before us as we walk out this psalm. And we won't take six days to do it. We're just going to do it quickly tonight. But here we go. Verse 1, Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. Day 1. Day one, God said, let there be light. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Let there be light. Right there in verse 2 of Psalm 104 is day one of creation. Going on. He lays the beams of His upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. Verse 3 is day two of creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 6. Day two is that interesting day that describes God dividing, think about this, dividing the waters below from the waters above. It's not dividing the waters of the earth into the lakes and the oceans and the seas. He does that later. It's dividing the waters below and above. What do you mean the waters above? The water canopy. 
And it's believed, and science has great evidence even to prove this, that the entire earth was at one time completely surrounded by a protective water canopy. Water in the atmosphere above. How in the world did Methuselah live so long? 969 years or however long it was. Noah, those ten generations from from the line of Seth all the way to Noah, all living near a thousand years. How? Water canopy. A covering over the earth that protected. In fact, a couple of things, if you'd like to note this, it gave us a regulated climate. No violent storms. Everything balmy. No drastic changes. Just a nice, sweet, tropical, balmy climate everywhere. Perfect. Eden-like the world over. A water canopy would achieve that. They found skeletal remains, frozen mammoths in the ice and in the digestive tract of these woolly mammoths that were frozen there, they found the remains of tropical plants. Tropical? How? Well, if the world was tropical. These were woolly mammoths found in Siberia, gang. Well, when was Siberia tropical? Water canopy. There are many other scientific evidences of the world being in that state. A regulated climate and a radiation-free zone. You realize that aging is an abnormality of nature? It is not God's intended created design and the water canopy would have protected against that. But once the water canopy was gone, now cosmic radiation, they're called neutrinos. Sounds like something they put in cereal, it's not. (laughs) Neutrinos are tiny radiating uh, beams of light literally that come from the sun and they fry us and they age us and they cause us to die. These neutrinos lambasting our bodies so you think well I'll just stay inside doesn't matter you realize the neutrinos what they do is even when the earth is turned against the sun and we're in the middle of the night those neutrinos are going directly through the planet coming right up out of the ground and frying us and aging us and causing my hair to fall out and my skin to wrinkle my teeth to get old and it's not good and that's the way it is now, decay and cellular mutation, cancer, death. It's because of the neutrinos that could not break through, did not get in in the days of the water canopy. Or if they did, it was in such minute amount that a man could live 900, 950, nearly 1,000 years. What happened to the water canopy? Any guess? Flood. Pop. God cuts open and we're told in Genesis chapter 6 that the waters came from above, gushed down the waters that God had separated on that second day of creation. The waters above now come crashing down. The waters below, God busted the pipes. And the waters literally, it says, came up and came down. It it wasn't just a heavy rain gang. The flood was a torrent of both directions. Horrifying. Incredible. Verse 4. So day 2 there is verse 3. And on in verse 4, He makes the winds His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. Well, that's talked about in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. It's interesting here, the psalmist suddenly inserts a mention of the angels. Angels who were present there during creation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7 says, Of the angels He makes, He, he says, quote, Who makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. And so the Hebrew writer illuminates for us that there, verse 4 is talking literally about the angels. The angels present at creation. 
God tells Job this. Job 37 verse, or 38 verse 7. He says, were you there when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Can you even imagine the worship service going on during creation? The angels shouting praise to God with every new aspect of the created world. Just stunning. They've never seen anything like it. As long as they had been with God, they had never seen a duck-billed platypus. <laughs> wow! He's got a, with a beaver tail and a duck thing. That's incredible. He's furry and he swims and he's... Wow! I, I, I just... I would love... I want to pop in the Blu-ray when we get to heaven and watch creation. Not to see creation happening. That'd be cool. I want to watch the angels. Because I guarantee they were not sitting there going, you know... All creatures of our God and King lift up His voice and wait. He's doing a third verse too. He's doing the third verse. They're just continuing. No, the angels would have been singing, you know, praising God. Look at what He's doing. Amazed. So I love that He mentions the angels right here, right in the midst of talking about, again, creation. And now we get to day three. Day three is the land and the seas were prepared. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. And literally from verse 5 all the way down to verse 18, this is described. Verse 5 through 18, day three, is described. He established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. And the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. And the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from His upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of His works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that He may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes a man's heart glad so that He may make His face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill the cedars of Lebanon which He planted where the birds build their nests the stork whose home is in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats and the cliffs are a refuge for the Shephanim. The Shephanim, Spencer, you remember the rock badgers, those little critters that go in and out of the rocks there in Israel. And they're really cool and they're very slick and slippery. But that's what he's talking about there. They're these little badger-like creatures. So that's day three that's described there. Day three is literally, again, the land and the seas all prepared. And then, and then, day four. God says, all right, the sky that was already prepared and readied, let there be light, He said on the first day. Now on day four, He says, okay, I'm going to put a sun there. I'm going to put the moon there. And the stars, Genesis 1.14, day four, beginning there in verse 19. He made the moon for the seasons, and the sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness and it becomes night, which all the beasts of the forest, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about, and the young lions roar after their prey, and they seek their food from God. Do you know lions actually sleep twenty out of twenty four hours a day? I'm not lying, they do. That's how long sleeping. They hunt the rest of the time and then they just sleep, just hanging out. 
And they do, their, they do so at night. Verse 22, When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man, go, I'd love to be lying around like that myself. You know, be, be cool. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. I'm sorry, I, I should really stick to the main thing here. You know, instead of trying to claw my way out with these stupid jokes. Then he says... <laughs> Where am I? Verse 22. When the sun rises, they withdraw. Okay, verse 23. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. And it's wonderful describing the sun and moon and stars placed there. So you've got the sun by day and the moon by night and the stars. And they're all placed there in the atmosphere for for man in the atmosphere that was prepared on day one. Ready so that on day four, these could all be placed into it. And with day four described, the psalmist praises the wisdom of God. Verse 24, O Lord, how many are Your works! In wisdom You have made them all. The earth is full of Your possessions. Now you've got to see this. When you read the creation story, not just here in the psalm, but back in Genesis 1, it's marvelous. The organization, the perfect planning that God had for all this. He, he consecutively created everything necessary in the first three days for what would come in the second three days. Day one, the atmosphere, the light. Let there be light. And so it was ready so that in day four he could place the sun, moon, and stars there. Day two, he says, okay, let's separate out the waters, water below, water above, so that on day five, the animals of literally the sea of the sky, the water separated, now you can have the birds in the sky and you can have the fish of the sea. And that happened on day five. And then on day three, he makes the land and the, and the water divide so that on day six, the land mammals and animals could be placed. It's perfect. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. By His knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. By His wisdom. And creation proclaims the amazing wisdom of God. So day five. There in verse 25. Day 5 is the day that the animals of the sea and the sky were placed in. Birds and fish. Genesis chapter 1 verse 20. Day 5 verse 25. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. What is Leviathan? Go back and listen to the teaching in Job. We talk all about that and explain it. So that's what happens there on day five. Animals of the sea and animals of the sky and the heavens and the, and the waters below were prepared for them ahead of time. Verse 27, day six. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give it to them and they gather it up. You open your hand and they're satisfied with good. You hide your face and they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, or literally ruach, their breath in the Hebrew, and they expire and return to dust. Verse 27 through 29, speaking of the animals of the land. Genesis 1, 24 and 25. Quickly, there's a difference here between the Ruach of animals and the Ruach of God mentioned in verse 30 as we'll get to it. The spirit in animals, the breath in animals is not the spirit, the eternal spirit. We talked about this, what, a week ago Sunday? The spirit that is given to man, that God breathes into man, different than the spirit in animals. And we see it even here. You take away their breath and they expire and they return to dust. That's it. 
And Fluffy is great to have around when Fluffy's around. And I don't mean to be uncompassionate. Actually, you might, you might pray for my, my in-laws because their dog Oscar is not doing well. So, and I'm not even going to make a joke about Oscar. Um, but he's, he's not going to be with us long. And we've had this conversation. You know, it's a joy when we have them, but they're animals. When they do return to dust, not so with man who is also created on the sixth day. God said in Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the cattle and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Then down in Genesis 2, verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath or the spirit of life and man became a living being. And you Bible students remember, living being is also used one other time, Ezekiel chapter 1, to describe the eternal cherubim. Man became like the angels, that is, eternal in nature. Verse 30, You send forth your spirit, Ruach again, God's spirit, And they are created. They who? Man. Now we're not talking about animals. We're talking about man. And you renew the face of the ground. So day six, not just the animals of the land, but of course man as well. And this is a beautiful and historic and poetic psalm of creation. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 says, God saw all that He had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Verse 31, Psalm 104, Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in His works. And He was. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. In in other words, He saw it all and it was good. It was really good, the Bible tells us. Verse 33 I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I still have my being. And that is our created purpose. The number one purpose of man, right there in verse 33, is to praise God. And as the psalmist goes through and describes the wonder and the glory of creation and and lands here with man, he ends up with man praising God because that's why we were made. To praise Him. But... It ain't over yet. There's still one more day. Day 7, Shabbat. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. God rested. Watch this, verse 34. Let my meditation be pleasing to Him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. We talked about Shabbat on Sunday. Verse 34 is a great definition of Sabbath rest. That time where we pause and our meditation is pleasing to Him, where we just stop and we're just glad in the Lord. Sabbath, day seven, as depicted in these verses. Worshiping the Lord who rested in His finished work. In verse 35, He ends, Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. You might say that's kind of an odd ending. <laughs> we have this glorious psalm about creation it goes all the way through. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. I'm going to praise the Lord and let my meditation, my Shabbat, my rest be wonderful in Him. And then all of a sudden the psalmist has to add this little stick, you know, and let the sinners be consumed from the earth. Let them go down. Let the wicked be no more. 
It's not an odd ending. It is an ending of choice. And the psalmist presents a choice. You can do either one. You can either be created to sing and worship God, or you can be consumed by sin. Created to sing, consumed by sin. Revelation 22 verse 11 says, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. God says, make the choice. It's not a little of this and a little of that. It's, man, if you're going to be filthy, be filthy. Go for it. If you're going to choose to be holy, be holy. But don't play these games. Don't stand with one foot on either side. Walk it all back tonight. What have we talked about? Psalm 104, the wondrous beauty of God in creation. Psalm 102, the tragic past of Israel and Israel's future hope and promise in the Lord. Psalm 101, the glorious inaugural address of Jesus our King. All these things speak of all the way back to the beginning of history, coming back up to the Holocaust and the the tragedy of the Jews, on to the coming of Jesus and His inaugural address. And we get this kind of this whole picture from beginning to end. And I'll end with this question. Knowing this, knowing what we know, how then shall we live? How shall we live our lives? And may we choose to walk with integrity as David declared in that inaugural address. May our ears be tuned with high sensitivity to the Holy Spirit speaking in these days, in these last days. May our eyes be focused you know, with, with steely-eyed accuracy on what the Lord is doing and may we join Him there until we are called home. Father, we pray that You would cause us to live faithfully and live aware with unveiled minds and unveiled hearts, clear and, and sanctified and prepared for service, hearts full of the joy of Your Word, rejoicing in everything from the creation of this world to the faithfulness of Your plan to the coming of Jesus Christ to His glorious kingdom, Lord, in all these things we have a wonderful truth laid out before us. And it's my prayer now, Holy Spirit, that You would do something that none of us can do for ourselves. Would You spur us on now to good works? Would You increase our faith and our witness and our testimony for You, Lord Jesus? Because we know the days are short. And as Paul said, we know our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Holy Spirit, change our hearts and come quickly, Lord Jesus, as we live out these days faithful to our God and King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.